And now it's time for Dave's Disney View Podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle Tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all. But he understands its place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. So come along and take a listen to Dave's thoughts about the Walt Disney World Resorts and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, I hope everyone's enjoying the holiday season and you're kind of getting into the spirit of it. And I really and truly hope that everyone gets to enjoy and experience the Walt Disney World Resort or the Disneyland Resort or any of the parks worldwide during the holiday season. Disney does a great job of putting up decorations and making it feel very festive and feel like that uh, spirit of giving that you have during the holidays and sort of that, that holiday cheer kind of comes, comes to life. And I hope you get a chance to experience it. If you haven't experienced it, maybe you'll get a chance to do so in the future and uh, head to one of the Disney parks during the holidays. It really is pretty magical and has a certain um, nice feeling to it. Now, on the other hand, maybe you got a chance to see Mickey's Once Upon a Time Christmas Time Parade that was streamed online on the Disney Parks blog. Back on November 30th, during one of the Very Merry Christmas parties, Disney actually put the stream out there and allowed us to kind of see the parade firsthand as it went down Main Street. Of course, it includes the Fab Five, Mickey and Minnie, and so forth. It also had some giant soldiers that were in the parade and a bunch of uh, holiday elements, some snow elements, and of course, Anna and Elsa. Who else would be there, right, besides Anna and Elsa? So to be able to see them and kind of experience it and get into the holiday spirit and the cheer a little bit was kind of fun to be able to sit there and watch it. It wasn't quite the same as being there, but it got us all in the spirit of it. I sat here with my kids, and we watched it online as it was streaming, and it was just a lot of fun. And I'm really glad Disney did that. It kind of made it worthwhile. Now, if you missed the stream, I haven't been able to find a link to that stream specifically, but I did find another version of the parade, and I'll put the link to it in my show notes page so you can watch it. It's kind of fun to sit there and just be able to take in the parade and enjoy it and kind of feel like you're there even when you're sitting at home. Whether you're in warm weather in Florida like I am or you're sitting in cold weather somewhere, it does give you that holiday spirit and that Disney touch of magic while you're away. So today's podcast is all about Disney news. There's a lot of happenings going on around the uh, Disney company, and I wanted to share some of that with you. Now, kind of starting that off, thinking about Shanghai Disney and the fact that it's now pretty much completed. I know it's not all the way complete. There's a lot of things that are already open and running up there. And so that means that Disney has a lot of operating capital to be able to move to other things. So there's a great opportunity for other things to start happening, some of these dreams to become reality. But before I move to those, let me just talk to you about the Shanghai Disney Resort just a little bit. There's a couple of interesting things going on there. One is that Disney is a uh, 43% owner in the park. And that's unlike Tokyo Disneyland, where Disney is a minority owner in the park. They own very, a very small percentage of the park. And the Oriental Land Company really manages the park and has a relationship with Disney to theme it and do all the Imagineering work in it. But it really is owned by someone else. Disney has a larger stake in the Shanghai Disney property, but that puts most of the burden of development on the Chinese government to ensure that everything's completed and all working. But Disney has a very large stake in it, and that's why the money was tied up for a period of time as they were doing some of this, this development work. 
Now, a couple of interesting stories that came out. Uh, one was that they relocated a number of people from the area around Shanghai where the park was actually built, and they put them into uh, apartment complexes that were nearby that a uh, local contractor uh, built. And it was interesting. I had never seen this happen before. There were two high-rise apartment buildings, and they actually had some sort of engineering malfunction with them, and they actually collided with each other on about the 20th floor or so. Two balconies of two different apartments collided from the two buildings, and they actually uh, uh, cracked some of the concrete. Now, whether it was a design flaw or whether it was they didn't counter, they didn't counter for the wind resistance or they didn't counter for uh, some uh, geological event or whatever, I don't know. But I find it interesting because from an engineering perspective, you should never see this kind of thing happening. The building should be stable and should not sway that much where they'd collide with each other. Now, Disney is in no way responsible for this, as I understand it. This was uh, based on the company that actually did the construction. But I just thought it was interesting because it was related to Disney in that these people were moved from that area into these apartment complexes. One other thing, I hear that there's going to be a Pixar-themed Toy Story hotel that's going to be the centerpiece of the Shanghai Resort. So that, that would be the primary hotel that would be there. And it really shows Disney's growth in the whole Pixar element and everything that they're doing. So I find that kind of interesting, and I want to see the development of that. I've seen some of the pictures that they've shown, and I think it's really pretty cool looking. They have a giant uh, Pixar ball on top of it in addition to the Toy Story characters. And there's supposed to be more interactive elements and some interesting things that happen there. So uh, I really want to see what that's going to come out like. So now that Disney has this money freed up, the question is, what are they going to be doing? And there's a number of different options that Disney has, and I think that there's plans for each of the parks. I know Disneyland is kind of on the back burner for the moment. They're not the focal point. A lot of the information that I'm hearing is mainly about Disney World and some of the things that are going to be developed there, or potentially developed there, as the case may be. So it's interesting, you know, you may hear some of these same rumors come around about Disneyland, or some of these same things may apply, but I think Disneyland is in the later 2015 spend, and Disney World is in the earlier 2015 spend cycle. Uh, at least that's the way I take it, based on the things that I've read. So one thing that Disney did at the Walt Disney World Resort was to purchase 300 acres of land for environmental mitigation. Now, mitigation is really just using land that you're setting aside for conservation so that you can build on some other land that might be environmentally sensitive. So that what you're doing is you're trading off an equal amount of land for being able to build something that you want to build in the location you want to build it. And it looks like there's the potential that it could be maybe a fifth uh, theme park, or potentially it could be an expansion to some of the theme park elements that we have already, or potentially it could relate back to some of the other development that we're seeing. Among other things is a uh, series of new hotels that they're building on the uh, west side of the Disney World Resort. If you look at a map, Disney is actually centered close to I-4, and all of the build to, the, to date has really been on the east side of the property toward where the I-4 corridor is. On the west side of the property, Disney owns a lot of land over there, and they haven't really built much. And they're going to be using some of that land for hotels that they're branding out with another company, and they're going to be doing some other development on it that's a little bit unknown at this point. So it will be interesting. I don't know what they're going to do with the land exactly, but it looks like they're doing some new development and they're going to try and expand the property. Remember that the Disney property is 47 square miles. And, you know, as they like to say, it's twice the size of the island of Manhattan. And you think about all the things that they have there already, and you realize that they've used, I don't know, that might be about half of the land that they have available. You have Celebration in part of it. You have the four theme parks. You have all the hotels and resorts. You have Downtown Disney or what's Disney Springs now. And you've got all these other vacation club properties that are scattered around. So all of these things are only about half the land that they have available. So what they do with the rest of it, hard to say, but it looks like there's some interesting opportunities. 
And speaking of houses, in the sort of the vein of what Celebration is, the Disney Imagineers came up with something else that they're calling Golden Oaks. Now, Golden Oaks is a luxury community that's going to be within the walls of the Walt Disney World Resort in that 47 square miles. And these homes that are luxury homes and fairly high-priced are available to own as uh, single-ownership homes. Now, this is a planned community that consists of five neighborhoods and will take up about 980 acres of, with parks, footbridges, gardens, and recreational pathways. They've done a lot of things to kind of make it very Disney-oriented, so it's almost like you're in Disney. It's well-landscaped. It's got some thematic things like um, sleepy sleeping on a bridge, for example, was one of the pictures I saw. And it is a master-planned community that is on Disney property, so kind of like Celebration to a large degree. But Celebration suffered from a little bit of a problem in that you have the deed to your home and you own it, but you don't have much control what happens beyond your doorstep. So I'll be curious to see what they do with this one and if it's different or if it's the same or what Disney does with it. Remember that Disney owns the Reedy Creek Improvement District, and that's where everything resides within the Walt Disney World Resort. It does take into account that some people have the, the means to live on Disney property and would like to have a property that they could own and call their own, kind of above and beyond or different from the Vacation Club property where you're only there for one week or two weeks a year. This one you would own and could be there for 52 weeks out of the year. I imagine that Disney's going to put some deed restrictions on it so that people can't just buy it and then lease it out, effectively making it a Vacation Club property of their own. Though I imagine that some people will buy it sort of as a vacation home for themselves, where they just go a couple of times a year for several weeks out of the year. But we'll see. Uh, I'll be curious to see how this kind of all develops. It's a clever idea on Disney's part, but I don't know where it's all going to go. There was a lot of flap recently about Disney's no-fly zone. So effectively what happened was, sometime after 2001, someone got the idea that Disney should be protected in both Florida and California with a no-fly zone meaning that no one can fly an airplane lower than, I think it's 10,000 feet, above either of the Disney properties. Now, it got slipped into one of the Patriot Act bills that came around sometime after 2001 and kind of went unnoticed for a long period of time. I think pilots realized it and they kind of worked around it, but it got some media attention over the last couple of months and it kind of became a hot topic for people. Now, in the Disneyland area, I certainly understand. You have LAX there, you have a lot of other properties that are affected by this potentially, and the no-fly zone really doesn't make sense. And, and there's some questions about whether it's effective or not. But besides that, it's kind of funny how someone kind of slipped that in and no one noticed until someone noticed. Now, in the Florida property, it's kind of a different story. There already was sort of a no-fly zone there for many years. I remember going to visit the Air Traffic Control Center as part of a class project back in the early 1990s. And I was talking to one of the controllers, and he was showing me on the map that there's a, they had a Mickey Mouse head on their map and saying, this is airspace that Disney controls. Once we get above a certain height, and I think it was, again, around 10,000 feet, then we control it. But below that, Disney controls that airspace. Now, what Disney did do at the time was they let uh, planes that were carrying banners and blimps and things like that fly into a certain area that was a small radius around their park, and they never said boo about it. But at some point uh, later, they started to push the planes further and further away. Uh, they started to you know, use that airspace and kind of control it to a larger degree and told pilots don't fly into it, unless you're flying at a, a higher altitude. But it's interesting how it kind of changed over time and became more of a political tool to some degree. Um, Disney was just trying to control that airspace, and I think it was mainly for marketing purposes. They didn't want people coming in and advertising and detracting from the sight lines that you had at Disney World. Because remember that when you're in Disneyland, you're right across the street from all these other things. It, you know, it never was what Walt wanted. But in Disney World, that's different. You have the ability to step away, and you don't see anything but the sight lines that they want you to see. 
So seeing aerial planes and blimps and you know banner planes and skyriders and everything kind of takes away from the experience of being away from it all. So in a sense, in Disney World, it kind of makes sense. And it went unnoticed for many, many years until this other package came up and someone got wind of it uh, about the whole Patriot Act and having the airspace restricted in that sense. It's just kind of interesting to me because Disney World was always kind of protected in its own way with, uh, with the way that they ran the airspace. And the FAA was uh, fully involved with this. They knew about it and they were, they were leveraging it and they let Disney kind of go with it. Remember that Disney in its deal with the state of Florida has certain land rights and up to a certain altitude of airspace that they own. And it's only a couple of thousand feet that they own, but uh, the FAA was willing to grant them a little bit higher. Now, commercial flights could always fly over it, but it, uh, it's just evolved over time to be something much more than just this simple airspace control. Now, the My Magic app has undergone some recent revisions, and some of them are really pretty good. One of the things that they're doing now is they're starting to put bus wait times inside the app. So let's say you're standing out at the Pop Century Resort and you're waiting for the bus to the Animal Kingdom. You can check the app to see how soon that bus will arrive from the Animal Kingdom. Kind of cool so that you have some sense of when the next bus is coming. Now, I believe that what they're going to be doing also is using some of the proximity sensors inside the Magic Bands to determine how many people are waiting there so they can determine if they need to put another bus on the route or reroute another bus to there to be able to pick up people, and instead of being maybe a 20-minute wait, they could reduce it to a 10-minute wait by having another bus come up. So kind of interesting to me. I think you, know, you can really use this whole My Magic and the, and the Magic Band and the, the technology to your advantage and really be able to plan a day and not have to wait so long for a bus. I know as a guest, one of the most frustrating things is being at a hotel and waiting and going, okay, when's the bus going to come? Then you see a bus pull up and you get that moment of excitement and then you realize, ah, oh, it's not going to the place I want to. And this would really help that to make that, uh, that experience more seamless for the guests. Uh, so I think it's a great thing that they're doing, and I think it's really cool. There is also a change that's being made that will allow you to purchase theme park tickets right in the My Magic app. You can make your theme park ticket purchase right there, and as soon as you make the purchase, you get a confirmation, and you can start booking your Fast Pass Plus times right then. So kind of cool that they've kind of come up with a way to let people purchase the tickets and be able to start doing their planning. They'll also allow for, if you purchase them from somewhere else, say uh, at a Disney park or at the uh, Disney store or something, even if it's an exchange ticket, to be able to put in that number and be able to start doing your Fast Pass Plus reservations at the same time. Very cool. It's using the technology to their advantage and making sure that people can get the most of the, out of that experience. So even for the day guests, such as myself, if I don't have a ticket already, I can purchase one online before I get to the park and start doing my Fast Pass Plus reservations. Remember on a previous podcast, I talked about how it was a pain in the neck to have to go through and do the Fast Pass Plus reservations on site that day, you know, the whole thing. This is much better and much easier, and I'm really impressed with they're doing this, and I think it's pretty cool. And of course, if you want to, you get, the, you get the plastic card automatically when you go and redeem your ticket. But if you want to, you can actually get the Magic Band for, I think it's $13, you can get a Magic Band and have that to wear as well if you're just buying a, a day ticket. And the uh, Magic Band is reusable for the next visit. You can continue to use it. Now, that's not to say that FastPass Plus is not without its detractors. There was an interesting article that appeared in the Huffington Post with the, where the author went off and talked about, for the first time in forever, I did not enjoy my vacation to Disney World. In it, she talks about how it's challenging to make all the FastPass Pluses and have the joy of going from place to place kind of on a whim taken away from you. And then you're kind of managing to the day, oh, I need to get to here, I need to get to there. And you may forget, in her case, to actually eat. And that made it kind of challenging. And she thought it took away from the whole experience. 
I'll put a link to the article in my show notes page, but I thought it was kind of interesting and worth noting that here's somebody who had a difference of opinion. Now, I know I said on a recent podcast where I visited the parks that I kind of enjoyed the experience. It was much better. But keep in mind, it was just me traveling, and I was able to easily get a couple of fast passes that I wanted, and I was going to the things I wanted to see. But I could imagine that if I was there with my family, it might be a different experience. Because again, of having to go and kind of book these fast pass pluses and trying to figure out where we're going to go and maybe missing out on this or standing in line for that, it might be okay, but you kind of have to think it through and decide how you want to take advantage of it. I don't think any of us have gotten smart enough or wise enough at this point with the whole experience to decide how to take on Disney. As I've said in the past, it leveled the playing field for people who are coming in the parks so that the people who go in all the time don't have the advantage anymore. And primarily, the people who are the high spenders are the people who are going to have the advantage. But we have to figure out how to use it differently so we can still take the most advantage of it as we go through our days and experiencing the theme park. If you haven't heard about it, two guys named Ted and Shane went on every Disney World attraction in 17 hours. They actually rode on 46 attractions during the course of their 17 hours and rounded it up to an even 50 just to make sure that they got the most out of it. Ted and Shane really kind of set a, set a bar that's pretty high. I was impressed that they were able to do all of that. There are some interviews they've done with different media outlets, but I want to know more about their story and find out more. So I'll have to dig into this a little bit more and get some more information from you. It just kind of fascinated me that they were able to do that. I did want to share with you a quick update about the autistic lawsuits that I had mentioned previously. Um, several parents of autistic children were suing Disney based on the fact that the whole uh, new disability assistance pass was not as effective as the old uh, guest assistance card that they used to have. And they had filed it as a class action lawsuit, in the, uh, and the judge had not certified the class and asked them to separate it out into individual lawsuits. So now there's a number of different lawsuits that Disney is fighting, and primarily they're fighting them in Florida. They, Disney did manage to get the venue moved to Florida, which will be a harder fight for them because the laws in California are more favorable to uh, people with disabilities than they are in Florida. Uh, it'll be a little bit more challenging, but I still think it's an interesting case and merits some attention. Now, if Disney does make some more tweaks to their FastPass Plus system and the whole way this works, this could all go away. It could just uh, be a, you know, a, a blip right now where parents are suing because they think they're not getting the most out of it. But it may get better over time as they come up with an impro- improvement to the system itself as they find ways to uh, include, be inclusive of guests with disabilities. Now, specific to the uh, parks at Walt Disney World, over in the Hollywood Studios, I'm sure you're aware that the Sorcerer's Hat is being removed. I have mixed feelings about it. I didn't like the Sorcerer's Hat when it first went in, but after a while, I kind of got used to it, and I will kind of miss it to a degree. It has a certain charm to it. I hope they go back to making the Earful Tower the primary focal point of the uh, Hollywood Studios rather than being the Sorcerer's Hat. There were a lot of rumors about why the Sorcerer's Hat was put there, and I think most of them could easily be debunked, but it took away the views of Man's Chinese Theater that's at the end of Hollywood Boulevard. And now there's a change coming to that particular theater. There's going to be a tie-in to Turner Classic Movies. So they're going to redo the opening sequence where they review all these different films and have like uh, short clips of different films. And they're also going to do, redo the end part of it where you're sitting in the ride vehicle and you're watching these clips from different movies and going to redo that to be more movies that are uh, Turner-oriented in some way. Now the trade-off is that the Turner company is going to be paying Disney for some of these renovations and in return they will be showing some old Disney movies on Turner Classic Movies. And I think that's great. I think that's a win all the way around. 
This is really what the relationships are built on. There's a great sense of quid pro quo. Each company gets something in return. So Turner Classic Movies has a chance to show some old Disney movies. Disney gets some influx of money to do, make some changes to the great movie ride. And I think that's really great. Now, there are some grander plans for the great movie ride, but those are going to take longer to accomplish. So for the short term, they're just going to brand it as Turner Classic Movies presents the great movie ride and up, update all the movies that you see in there. Now, you may have heard that Star Wars Land may be coming to the Hollywood Studios, or there may be some expanded parts to the park. It's unclear what exactly will happen, whether it will be the new films or the old films, or what will be part of what they're doing, but it certainly seems likely that they're going to be doing more Star Wars-themed things at the uh, studios. And there's still talk about which direction they're going to go and what they're going to do with it. But we got a hint from Bob Iger when he was talking about changes to the Hollywood studios and changes that would include the uh, Star Wars-themed areas. Now, turning outside the park for just a moment to Disney Springs, uh, there were a series of new restaurants that are opening up there, including the uh, Boathouse and a Morimoto-owned restaurant. Now, uh, Masaharu Morimoto is the uh, one of the original Iron Chefs. And if you ever watched that show in the late 1990s, that was just such a fun show. The original from Japan was fantastic. And Morimoto was one of the uh, chefs that appeared there. And he's got a great personality. He doesn't speak much English, but he's, he's just a lot of an interesting guy and a lot of fun to listen to. And his cooking looks great. So I would really want to check out that restaurant. One of the two parking garages is now open. And one of the cool things is that it tells you how many spaces are occupied. And as you drive up a ramp, there's little lights that go down the uh, aisleway there, and they're red if someone's parked in there and green if no one's parked there. So as you drive up the aisle, you don't have to kind of look for stealth cars and try to find a space. You just look for green. Makes it really simple. I don't know why more parking garages don't do that. But here's Disney innovating in something that I think is really going to help out in the long run. Also, Disney was experimenting with some food trucks at downtown Disney, and they created a food truck park as part of Disney Springs. Now, this food truck park is actually going to use several Disney-owned uh, food trucks that are going to be there. So it'll include Superstar Catering, representing Hollywood Studios, the Namaste Cafe for Disney's Animal Kingdom, the World Showcase of Flowers brings the taste of Epcot's International Food and Wine Festival to Disney guests year-round, and the Fantasy Fair features dishes from the Magic Kingdom around the world. And one of the things they're going to have is hand-dipped corn dogs that kind of represent the spirit of Disneyland. So kind of cool in its own way, and I th it's kind of, kind of neat that they're doing that. Over in the Magic Kingdom, a couple of things. One is that the Peter Pan queue has been updated. Now, what they did was they took the bathrooms that used to be at the end of the Peter Pan queue before you went into Liberty Square, and uh, they took those bathrooms offline, and they built the bathrooms that are under the Rapunzel Tower, so you have some in the same location, essentially. They're just across the walkway from it. And they used that space to create a new interactive queue. Now, the interactive part is still being worked on, but for now, you're walking through... John, Peter, and Wendy's bedroom, and you see Nana's stuff there as well, and you walk through and you're kind of being told the story while you're waiting in line. That makes the line much more appealing, so a FastPass Plus isn't so important. I might be willing to wait in a line if it's something fun, and I'm not kind of standing just in a bare queue with nothing really going on. Now, as you may know, Cinderella's Royal Table is undergoing some refurbishments, and so they've moved the Cinderella character meal from the castle over to Citrico's, which is over at the Grand Floridian Resort. Now, some people aren't too happy about this. Some people don't mind. It seems like it's a, you know, an okay experience. Citrico's is a kind of a nice restaurant. It's out on the lake, and they are doing some things to make it more compelling for guests to make it interesting, since it's outside of the castle. Now, one thing that they're doing is offering a plus experience. One is the First Wish package, which is $92 and includes a pixie-dusted rose and a charm for a bracelet, which has a Sawarski wishing star within it. 
But if you really want to do it upright and impress your little princess, there's the My Disney Fairy Tale Proclamation, which includes a sparkling tiara, a light-up crystal slipper, princess robe, and her very own personalized proclamation signed by her favorite fairy tale princess for only $286. And of course, that's in addition to actually going and having the character meal. But you can really up the experience, and I think it's a very clever idea from Disney's standpoint to market this and really make something more compelling for the little girls who are coming in there and their families who can afford to do something as a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. So kind of neat, and I think it is kind of a charming little thing, pardon the pun since it's Prince Charming, but I think it's a clever little thing that they're doing. Now over in the Animal Kingdom, there's uh, two new things coming. One is an Africa marketplace that'll be a more expanded offering of uh, African-themed items and food, a couple of new restaurants as well. And then a new nighttime show to kind of expand out the idea of making the whole Animal Kingdom a larger experience, more than just a half-day experience or someone just wants to go and see Expedition Everest and leave. What they want to do is make it more interactive and more fun so that people want to stay for the whole day or potentially longer. Now, turning outside the parks, I was fascinated. I've been reading all these stories recently about all these new movies that Disney is trying to put together. One of the things they've got is, based on the the success of Frozen, they're actually working on a new animated feature called Moana. She'll be a Polynesian princess that they can bring along. Now, there's some great tie-ins to some of the things that they're doing already at uh, Disney World and Disneyland with the uh, Polynesian uh, theming things that they have. So, for example, the Polynesian Hotel or maybe the Tiki Room or uh, some of the things that they've got there. And here's a little nugget about Frozen. It turns out that the DVD sales and the ticket sales to the movie amounted to about $1.5 billion in total revenue. That's pretty remarkable. And the other products associated with the film, such as music, merchandise, dresses, everything else, has amounted to about $1 billion in sales. So it's no wonder that Disney has an interest in continuing to expand this franchise and finding new ways to try and get other Disney princesses into the mix. Now, Moana may turn out to be a very interesting film. The thing is that Disney is sensitive to the fact that a lot of stories that are written about characters from Polynesia and that part of the world are often misrepresented or characterized or kind of drawn into a caricature almost. And so Disney realized this and went out and hired Taika Watiti, who's a multicultural person. He's actually like Russian, Jewish, Maori, and he lives in New Zealand. So he's a really interesting guy, and he understands the cultural significance and actually was hired to write this story. So there's some interesting things that I think will come out of the storyline as a result of that. Now, he, uh, he's appeared in other movies and has written other things. If you ever saw the movie Boy or you saw The Green Lantern, he was one of the characters in that. But an interesting guy, and I think he has some things that he can do with the storyline to make her a really heroic character and um, make Moana very strong and powerful and you know, kind of not culturally stereotype the people that are there. That's the one complaint that sometimes you hear about Disney is that they stereotype some people and kind of write them in a way that maybe is not the most flattering. So I'm impressed that they're doing this, and I I look forward to seeing what the storyline comes out with, because it's going to be the tale of this girl who goes on an adventure. Uh, She lives in Oceana, and she she goes through some things in her life. And I just, I think it is intriguing and kind of follows along with the whole idea of Merida and uh, Queen Elsa, where you have something that happens and they become stronger characters and stronger women as a result. And I think that's a great role model to have. There's a new Cinderella movie that's coming out, and it'll be a live-action film, and there will be a Frozen short that'll be shown at the beginning of that film. There's another Pixar film coming called Inside Out that's a look inside someone's brain. And in the previews, I'm kind of reminded of the Cranium Command that used to be in Epcot. I'll have to see if that actually turns out to be the case. For some reason, Disney has decided to remake Pete's Dragon. Now, Pete's Dragon is one of the worst films that I can remember. I actually rented it 
oh, probably about three or four years ago for my kids to see. And it was awful. I mean, it was just, it really wasn't very entertaining at all. Cleverly thought out, the theme was clever, but it just was a terrible film, and they're going to remake it and uh, make it more interesting, I hope. We'll see what that one does. You've probably seen the ads for Into the Woods, which is sort of an uh, amalgamation of all the different uh, woods-oriented stories uh, from the Grimm brothers that have come together into Disney films, and they'll bring them together into a, a single film. There is talk about Frozen 2 coming out in a couple of years, so keep an eye out for that one. Uh, Finding Dory is another one that Pixar has on the radar that they're working on. So those are all coming together. So I just find it interesting that Disney is really banking on the fact that they have all of these great ideas and they want to get them out into theaters and start marketing them and uh, building themes around them. And I can guarantee you that most of these will have uh, theme park equivalents when they do get them out there and they'll, be, they'll have more things going on. And on a, more, on a lighter note, a couple of other things about the Walt Disney World Resort in general. One is that Meg Crofton, who's the head of the Parks Division, will be stepping down and no longer holding that position. She's going to retire from the Disney Company. And the question I have for her is, Meg Crofton, you've just retired as the head of Disney Parks. What are you going to do now? I wonder if the answer would be, I'm going to Disney World? And the other piece was that I saw a Disney World commercial aimed at annual pass holders. They were trying to remind people that you can get an annual pass as a Florida resident, and you can use the monthly payment system, and so on and so on. And they were showing these vistas of Disney World and different attractions and so forth. But I happened to notice that when they showed the teacups, they actually showed the teacups from Disneyland. Oops! And the reason you know that, of course, is because in Disneyland, there's no cover on it. The teacups are outside, and there's nothing covering them. But in Disney World, there's like this gazebo that covers the uh, teacups attraction. So kind of a little oops on the Disney company's part that they didn't notice that, or that the production company that produced it didn't notice that or didn't realize it. I guess they were using some sort of stock footage, and they said, oh, teacups, put it in. But it was kind of funny, and it made me laugh and chuckle just a little bit that something like that would happen, especially when they're advertising to Florida residents who probably know the difference. And that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned a little something about the latest in Disney and what's going on there. And I hope you have a very happy holiday. And remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. Now, please exit the moving podcast. The walkway is moving at the same speed as your podcast. Kindly take small children by the hand and watch your head and step. If you have questions, thoughts, or would just like to ask Dave a question, please send an email to davesdisneyview at gmail.com. You can always find Dave's Disney View on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. Show notes for this podcast can be found on disneyworldpodcast.net. Original music you hear in this podcast is courtesy of Sound A Music. You'll find a link to the latest Disney-related autism awareness event on the show notes page. We also encourage you to check out Dave's iPhone apps. There are a couple of Disney-related apps, including a Hidden Mickey's app and a pin trading app.